was an arch curator, you know, those of us who are ignorant. Yeah. Piece of advice on what I'm doing, or what's being expressed, or why it's important. In September of 2023, my team and I visited Salvation Mountain in Nyland, California, in the Imperial Valley. It was 114 degrees. In the middle of the desert, I walked up to this man-made mountain, covered in colorful paint, with the phrase, God is love, written in big letters. This wonderfully colorful site is a folk art mecca, a dedication of one man to his faith. In the heat, we sought refuge under a small awning where we met little dribbling gray wolf, who goes by wolf. He's a docent at Salvation Mountain, providing information and stickers to tourists at the site. Wolf moved to Slab City several years ago and now lives in Camp Phoenix with his wife. Slab City is an unincorporated community, no running water, municipal electricity. It attracts those who seek an alternative lifestyle. There are no rules and little government. Periodically, Border Patrol moves through the area and schools pick up the few children. But homes are built of discarded materials and people live in small neighborhoods with different cultures. Slab City swells in the winter as snowbirds arrive, seeking to build their own society. Residents say it's the last free commune in America. Wolf appreciated the freedom to live the way he and his wife wanted. Um, I was living in Florida because my parents were in the military and I basically grew up there. And my wife is, I met her in Florida and we kind of moved out here because of all the laws that were changing in Florida. They were passing laws saying that you couldn't feed the homeless in restaurants. I had one. Um, they made laws to where I couldn't park my work trucks because I had a lawn and tree service business, saying I couldn't park my work trucks in the street or in the driveways of my clients' homes. So I had to lug everything 15 to 20 blocks in order to do somebody's lawn because of some silly law that made things harder on me. I just gave up on that and said the heck with it and I got rid of everything and I moved out here. Wolf isn't alone in finding a home and embracing new opportunities in the valley. And some see the lithium industry as the biggest opportunity of all. I'm Charles Zukoski, the Vivian Professor of Chemical Engineering and Material Science and the previous provost of the University of Southern California. I'm your host for Electric Futures, a podcast series exploring lesser-known stories of the energy transition from the perspectives of people most impacted by changings that transition will bring. This is Season 1, looking at lithium extraction in the Imperial Valley and how the transition will affect the community and climate change at large. This is Episode 3, looking at how lithium extraction is expected to boost the local economy and the trade-offs associated with the growth of this industry. The community is preparing with cautious optimism. In the face of diminished flows in the Colorado River, memories are haunted by past hype. I'll have all that and more. Drive south through the Imperial Valley around the Salton Sea, and you see communities that were built when the Salton Sea was a tourist destination when water activities and fishing were enjoyed in that body of water. These days are gone, but not forgotten. There is much pressure to restore the Salton Sea to its past condition. Evaporation is forcing the sea to shrink, 
and the salt levels are rising to the point that few fish can survive. The communities show signs of having seen better economic days. When my team visited Imperial Valley, we had many conversations with community leaders and local residents. A few weren't from the area, but moved there after hearing about it from someone else, like Wolf. Kristen O'Lear actually moved to the valley in 2019, sight unseen from North Carolina. She had accepted a job at the Imperial Valley Desert Museum, where she's now the executive director. I love a challenge. I love moving to new and exciting environments and meeting new people and community. And I think that not only in um, professional experiences, but also personal experiences. So it's been a really exciting adventure. But you don't realize that there's 10 million years of history that you get to look at every day. That when you're driving in a Cumba and like driving towards San Diego, you're looking at geological formations that have remained relatively unchanged for millions of years. That BLM land stewards millions of acres of public land, and 95% of that resides in the Imperial Valley alone. That's for residents to enjoy. But we met many residents who were born and bred in the valley, who had one thing in common. They'd all left and then came back. Like Imperial Valley Board of Supervisors Chairman Ryan Kelly. So I was born and raised in Brawley, California. I was born to a farming family that had been here for two generations before I was born. When I went to high school in, at Brawley High, I took French because I thought I was never going to come back here. So I went away to school and uh, after graduation, I actually was trying to become a professional firefighter and opportunities in multiple jurisdictions, but the first one that I got hired full-time was here in my hometown of Brawley. Agriculture has been the backbone of the Valley's economy. But even for families who have been involved in agriculture for several generations, there are disruptions. An indication of the struggles can be found in unusual storms in the summer of 2023 that washed crops away. Farming alone struggles to keep the county afloat. In the Valley, median salaries in this sector are about 35K a year in an industry employing nearly 11,000 people. But these communities identify as agricultural, in no small part due to the 500,000 acres of cultivated fields and thousands of miles of canals that cover the valley. Drive on the roads in the valley, and you are continuously passing slow-moving agricultural vehicles or trucks carrying irrigation equipment. And you look out on fields in various stages of crop growth. The valley produces crops 12 months of the year. The largest employer in the valley is the government. About 7,000 jobs are in the two state prisons, and another, 1,500 to 2,000, are in Border Patrol and in the Air Force Base. Most government officials we spoke to have their own stories about growing up in the valley, leaving, and returning later. Brawley Mayor George Nava also left the valley for college and then came back. He now owns several businesses there. Go and so I was born in Mexicali, Mexico in 1976, and uh, you know they didn't realize that that uh, ruined my chances for, for becoming president of the United States, right? Because who knows if that was uh, ever a dream. But anyway, uh, you know, so you know, grew up here in the city of Brawley, and uh, I did uh, attended the local schools, went to went to school here, grew up here, obviously in agriculture as well. My family's in agriculture; they have been for many years. And uh, so grew up around that. 
you know, always worked from an early age, from like the age of 12, 13, 14, 15. By the time I was about 15, I was already kind of working like a grown man, you know, doing things that they would do too. And so um, just really enjoyed this this environment. I like uh, I like Imperial Valley. I always say, you know, the, the, the weather is hot, but the people are cool, you know? And so it's a, it's a good place to be. And so I, I went to school here locally. Uh, I graduated from the community college, Imperial Valley College, and then I transferred to San Jose State University. And so spent some time there as well, and then came back, started some businesses here, and have uh, been here ever since. It's been hard to keep people in the valley because many leave looking for new opportunities. Locals have called this the brain drain. Kids graduate high school and leave. Many jobs are associated with the transportation and warehousing industry, supporting the 400,000 trucks crossing the Mexico-U.S. border each year. This sustains about 2,000 jobs. Because of jobs outside agriculture, the median income in the valley is increased above 35 k but remains modest at $52,000 a year, two-thirds of the rest of the state. Housing prices are modest at $265,000, about a third of the state average. But jobs are scarce. Unemployment sits at between 15 and 20 percent. And the community has not seen a lot of state or federal investment. The roads are dirt, the bridges wooden. Not surprisingly, inhabitants seek a better way of life. Lithium presents new jobs and a new hope for the economy. Elizabeth Espinoza, Energy Source Materials Community Affairs Liaison, told us about the enthusiasm for growth of the lithium industry in the community. But I was born and raised out here. I attended some elementary schools out here, our local high school, our community college, and San Diego State University Imperial Valley, which then transferred to San Diego State main campus. And uh, completed my bachelor's and master's with them. And so I'm a first-generation Latina. I am very excited to be part of this whole process. And um, I just think it's a really exciting future for us. I mean, if you look at our average age of the county, we're 32 years old. We are ready for this. We're ready to grow. In our discussions with Valley residents, we learned that they want to see steady jobs that stabilize families and lives. They want the Salton Sea drying to be mitigated. They want less dust less emphysema. They want the countryside not to be disturbed. They want assurance that new industries will not expand environmental degradation and that their communities will benefit from industrial expansion. The state government recognizes these desires and has been focused on creating opportunity. Noemi Gallardo is commissioner at the California Energy Commission. She has the Lithium Valley vision as part of her policy portfolio. Here's what she had to say. Energy storage is vital for us to have a more reliable grid uh, based on renewables. So, you know, having an area in the state of California that can provide lithium, which is a you know key ingredient for batteries, um, whether we want to have an electric vehicle future or just for you know uh, standalone batteries, this element is is you know necessary. And so for us to have that in the state um, is a huge opportunity. And especially if we could get that element in a sustainable way, not impact <laughs> the environment adversely, and also make it a boom for the local community, especially the community in the Salton Sea region that has felt more detrimental impacts that, than it has any benefits 
whether that be from um, industry or from, you know, state policies, et cetera. So it just overall seemed like a win-win at the local level and at the state level. And then on top of that, you know, we have this huge opportunity uh, of the federal government providing a lot of investment. And so we wanted to also maximize that opportunity for this local area. And what we see here is that uh, the Lithium Valley is an opportunity for California to transform the globe, just like Silicon Valley did, we can do it again, but this time in a more sustainable way and an equitable way that really benefits the community there in the Salton Sea region and makes them shareholders of this uh, initiative. But to achieve this transformation, all parties have realized that those who live in the valley don't want to be burned again by another industry that gives them big hopes, extracts profits, and then just leaves. This time, residents of the Valley have seemingly found a solution. And it all starts with education. Into this environment comes hopes for a new industry, lithium extraction. The growth of any industry cannot happen at corporate whim. The industry is required to get permits, to explain what they are doing in public meetings, to file environmental impact statements, and for elected officials to sign off on the projects. The companies in the lithium extraction business have been upfront. What they are attempting is untested at scale. The technological challenges are substantial. At this point, however, demonstration plants have been operated and show sufficient promise that corporations are ready to expand. But the members of the community remain cautious. What community wants to commit large resources and fail? The industry is built to operate in conjunction with the geothermal power industry, where brines are brought up from deep in the earth, used to drive turbines, and in the process, cooled. In the current incarnation of this industry, these cooled brines are pumped back into the ground to limit aquifer depletion. Using a direct extraction technology, the proposed industry will pull lithium from the cooled brines prior to them being re-injected. The lithium is precipitated as a hydroxide or carbonate ready to be used in batteries. The brines used to drive the 10 50-megawatt geothermal power plants could each attach a lithium extraction unit. Financial estimates show that each unit, the standalone power plant and the standalone lithium extraction plant, are profitable. In combination, the profits could be large. Each unit is said to require about 200 workers. These are good jobs, 20 to $40 an hour jobs. If each plant attached a lithium extraction unit, that would add 2,000 industrial jobs to the valley. As industry employs 10,000 people in the area, this would have a material impact, an important boost to the local economy. This time, Imperial Valley wants to make sure these jobs go to local residents. But for that to happen, a trained workforce is needed. And that's where Imperial Valley College, IVC, comes in. In May of 2023, IVC announced a joint education venture. It's with Imperial County, Energy Source Materials, Berkshire Hathaway Renewables, and Controlled Thermal Resources, called the Lithium Industry Force Training Program, or LIFT program. As I mentioned in a previous episode, the program will offer 18-month short-term certificate programs focused on lithium. 
These certificates are for plant operators, instrumentation technicians, and chemical lab technicians. IVC is an amazing community college, having been named the best community college in the nation by the Aspen Institute in 2023. LIFT characterizes why IVC is so effective in meeting its mission. At the press conference, BHE Renewables General Manager Lenny Sarian said hiring locally was a huge priority for the company. Um, we're very excited and uh, actually when we first uh, thought of this um, lithium recovery project, we of course uh, identified what would be our workforce because eventually we're going to need a lot of people. And our first thing in our mind is to collaborate with IVC because we need people from here uh, locally. We want to support um, the local workforce, but we have to prepare them. And so this is really a very good uh, first step on preparing our uh, local wor workforce. Fast forward to August 2023. Two sections were initiated. Student interest is high. All the 60 seats were filled for the plant operator certificate program. These students are taking a bet. They entered into this program with anticipation of good jobs in an industry that does not yet exist. The need for jobs and the desire to have family members return shows that to build an industry that will save the world, one needs to build opportunities to earn a good paycheck. IVC's Efren Silva, the Dean of Economic and Workforce Development, created the LIFT program's curriculum. Silva began working on the program about two years prior to LIFT's initiation. I spoke with him in September of 2023 as the first cohorts were underway. Here's a short excerpt from that conversation. Community colleges, uh, at best case scenario, takes a year time to develop curriculum. Uh, sometimes it can take up to two years. Uh, and then to actually teach the courses and produce graduates, that's another year. So we knew that we were looking at somewhere along a two to three year window to be ready for, for these opportunities. So we knew that we had to start early, right? So we um, called the companies and they said, okay, if you want a ready workforce, we need to start uh, having those conversations now. And I have to give credit to all three of those companies and that they uh, were very much active in our curriculum development process. And you started them up this fall? So we, uh, we developed the curriculum for all three of them, but we're also aligning the beginning of the, the programs to align with the anticipated hires. So at this point in time, given where they are in terms of their production schedules, uh, they do not anticipate hiring instrumentation techs or chem lab techs until probably 25, 2025 or 2026. So uh, I don't want to start a program in which there are not going to be opportunities for our students. So we are timing the beginning of those programs to align with those anticipated workforce needs. Uh, we did start plant operators because they, um, they anticipate hiring plant operators by either late fall late fall 24 or early early 25. You're only a few weeks in, but how does it feel like? Uh, my goodness, the uh, response in the, from the community was just totally incredible. Uh, the calls and wanting to know more about how do we sign this up, how, how do we sign up for these courses. So I'm also very, um, very happy and proud and, and a little bit surprised to say to you that 
a full 40% of our students in plant operations are, are, are females. So we very, have a very, yeah, we have a very diverse representation of our community in our, in our courses. So I'm very, very excited about that. Um, I met with the students the first time that we met with them. It was so uh, gratifying, not just to me, but to all of us that worked on this for such a long time. So the, is the program just classroom and lab, or do they connect somehow with the industry? So we have a three-to-one ratio for every hour of lecture that they have. They get three hours of hands-on activity. So it's very much hands-on uh, learning. But jobs and workforce training are just one part of getting things up and running in the Imperial Valley. The Lithium Valley needs to confront community concerns about the past and to build an infrastructure for the future. One of the major concerns lies in retaining jobs in the community. In our conversations, the fears have origins in the push into renewable energy production where, over the last decade, industrial-scale solar energy farms started to dot the countryside. While annual geothermal electricity production is about 3,400 gigawatt hours and has been steady for 40 years, it now contributes less than half of the electricity production in the valley. Over the past decade, solar farms have come to dominate electricity generation with annual production of 4,250 gigawatt hours. In addition, 650 gigawatt hours of wind turbine energy is produced in the county each year. The growth of renewable energy in the valley results from a desire of the state of California to move away from fossil fuel generated power. The state has established a timeline for energy to be 100% renewable by 2045. Because of the abundant wind and solar resources and dropping costs of installation, if one includes hydroelectric and nuclear, California's push into renewable energy has already resulted in 59% of the power coming from sources that do not admit greenhouse gases. The state recently set targets of 90% clean energy by 2030 and 95% by 2040. These aggressive goals resulted in development of solar panel farms and large battery storage units in the valley. Many of these were built on productive agricultural land. The valley was chosen as the place to put these solar fields because it has the country's largest number of irradiance days per year, meaning the valley sees more sunshine than anywhere else. Additional advantages include low land cost, access to transmission lines, and flat land. The result has been a dramatic expansion of solar farms reflected in the current electric power generation capabilities of the valley. The land consumed and the small number of full-time jobs associated with the solar farms raise controversy. LA Times climate columnist Sammy Roth took me through these issues. Despite all the benefits to putting solar on farmland, the less water use and not destroying wildlife habitat in the same way as you would in the desert, it's controversial because farming is really the sort of heart and soul of the Imperial Valley. I mean, if you haven't been there before, this is, this is why this place exists today as we know it. It exists because more than 100 years ago, uh, early farmers built these canals to bring Colorado River water from the border with Arizona into the desert into Imperial. They have half a million acres of farmland out there now that really is the just total center of the economy of this place and of the employment and of the tax revenues. And it's, it's just their way of life. So even though you have some farmers who have been very happy to say, 
okay, I'll, I'll take your money, solar developer, and you can have my land to do what you please with. You have plenty of other folks, their neighbors and their friends and colleagues who see that as an affront to their way of life and as a threat to the future of this place as they know it. Uh, so when I've been down there reporting on this stuff, yeah, I've, I've talked with farmers who are happy to do it, and I've talked with farmers who are outraged. In addition, there is a sense that wealth from the solar farms leaves the community. The farm jobs disappear. Property taxes drop so that infrastructure like roads, bridges, dust control, and mitigation of salt and sea drying cannot be built. Those in charge of public policy at the level of the state of California look at the activities in the Imperial Valley as an opportunity. Noemi Gallardo, commissioner of the California Energy Commission, describes the state's commitment like this. So um, in regards to trade-offs, one of the things that really stood out to me from the get-go was with um, a comment Assemblymember Garcia made, who's a really strong advocate for that area uh, that he represents. And it was that the community members should be treated as shareholders of this, you know, whatever's going to happen here, this Lithium Valley effort. And so I took that to heart. And so um, anyway, so they're facing these challenges that makes them, it makes it hard for them to be able to get ready for this bigger Lithium Valley opportunity. And so it's hard for them to view it as an opportunity. They, they want to make sure they don't get left out, but like, how do they get there? And so we're trying to see what kind of resources and support can we bring to these, you know, seven cities to ensure that they're ready for this opportunity. And if Lithium Valley weren't to happen for some reason, right, like it's all looking really good for Lithium Valley. But if it weren't to happen, the investments we're making as a state will still be really beneficial for these communities, including these seven cities, because they have been left out for so long that that's going to be worthwhile for us anyways. And I think the governor has prioritized um, this effort and basically because he is prioritizing that community and that area. And we're hoping to we can do our best. But I think, you know, a lot of it is having those discussions and those one on ones and us as state representatives going to them and meeting them where they're at to determine how do we best, you know, support you all so that this Lithium Valley initiative that we're all looking at that could be amazing for, um, you know, not just that local region, but the state and the country and even the globe. How do we make that happen? But ensuring that, you know, they're getting the benefits and not necessarily being being the trade-off. Progress requires protection of the public interests. Elected officials are well aware of this concern, and they push through a state extraction tax that returns funds from lithium production directly to the counties and communities. Imperial Board of Supervisors Chairman Ryan Kelly explained this to me. So we announced that in February of 22, and that was the backbone of SB 125. It included a specific plan and programmatic EIR for Lithium Valley, a health impact analysis, community-based organizations for outreach and engagement, um, funding for a STEM building at SDSU and Brawley, and a severance tax. And the severance tax was split 20% for Salton Sea restoration and 80% for Imperial County. Um, And so that was passed. It was a lot of um, grueling weeks there to see if it was gonna get enough support, but it did, and it was approved in May. 
at the revise, or actually in June, when they took the vote and the governor signed it. Um, and immediately the money came to us to initiate these programs. And so right now, we're 12 months into the specific plan and programmatic EIR, which includes housing infrastructure. We have started a workforce and economic development uh, uh, study for not just Lithium Valley, but the entire county. We're doing a health impact analysis on Lithium Valley, and we have funded five groups, community-based organizations, to do outreach and engagement on the programmatic EIR. There are so many meetings that are occurring with Lithium Valley in our community that sometimes it can be a bit uh, taxing or burdensome even for the community. There's certainly enthusiasm for lithium extraction in Imperial Valley. But this is an industrial process. There are waste products. Trucks rumble over dirt tracks. Water will be consumed. Cultural resources may be degraded. The magnitude of these risks is poorly understood. This is, after all, a new technology. The new technology might fail. Traylon Bradley, the Deputy Director for Sustainable Freight and Supply Chain Development at the California Governor's Office of Business and Economic Development, is well aware of these risks and frames the issues around the community committing all its resources to a single activity. I think the key point in now this big investment opportunity from public and private sector and this paradigm shift in global supply chains is not to put all of our eggs in one basket within a region or territory, because what happens when it goes south? We've seen that happen in so many areas of the country um, and, and so many areas of the world and in many of these inland communities where we are now having these same conversations. So that's really what our office has been very proactive through some of the funding that we've had and the staff that we've had, as well as some of our um, partner agencies and looking at other opportunities within Imperial. There's a huge opportunity with the hydrogen market there. Also, there's existing opportunities that with agriculture and biotech that we are very involved with um, as an office and supporting. Hmm. And uh, so I think that's that's really one thing, too, is is that we're in this new step of of making this big shift and making these huge investments, but to not get in that mindset of putting all of our eggs in one basket, because when something goes south, everybody is affected by it. Um, and you know, that's the that's the difference, I think, this time around. In a conversation, the famed oceanographer, Dr. Sylvia Earle, captured these concerns well. I spoke with her in the fall of 2023 when she was the first climate communicator in residence at the USC Annenberg Center for Climate Journalism. And this is what she had to say. To understand that there are libraries of answers to the big questions we need to have, but the most important one, how do we keep Earth safe? How do we maintain the integrity? This is a security question. Everything we care about really is anchored in protecting the systems that maintain our existence. So the most, most important thing we take out of the earth, out of the ocean, out of the sky, is our existence. And if we ask that question with whatever big action, whether you're putting a dam across a river or digging lithium out of the earth or extracting it from volcanic fluids or 
or finding new ways to capture ocean wildlife by the ton, we, we've come to feel that the living Earth is, is what makes our existence possible, not rocks and water. The living Earth, based on the basic ingredients of rocks and water, but as you pointed out, it's taken a long time to get to a habitable Earth. It's taken a short time for us to unravel the systems because we didn't know. And what don't we know now? Now that we have heard about the economic benefits, it's time for us to examine the trade-offs in depth, starting with how the lithium industry may impact the environment. We'll do this in Episode 4 of Electric Futures. I'll see you next time. Electric Futures is an original podcast from the University of Southern California, hosted by me, Charles Zukoski, the Vivian Professor of Chemical Engineering and Material Science and the former USC Provost. This series was executive produced by Allison Agston, the director of USC's Annenberg Center for Climate Journalism and Communication. USC Annenberg professor Mallory Cara is our lead producer. Natalie Lopez and Spencer Klein are our associate producers. Cindy Chai is our research assistant. This episode was directed by Mallory Cara and edited and sound designed by Spencer Klein. Electric Futures was recorded on location in Imperial Valley and in the Annenberg Media Center Studio B. Victor Figueroa, Sebastian Grubach, Matthew Buxbaum, and Tom Norris provided technical supervision. Our cover art is by Matthew Buxbaum. All music and sound effects used with express permission under limited blanket license authority from Epidemic Sound. We used audio from a May 2022 Imperial County press conference, which is public record. If you'd like to read more about the topics covered in this podcast, please check out our additional resources document linked in the episode notes. You'll also find that we have links to the transcripts of this episode available in English and Spanish. You can follow us on Instagram at USC underscore electric futures.